0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Halting hegemony, President Xi calls for greater global cooperation. Footballing Fury plans for a European Super League draw increasing ire. And Doge Day, the cryptocurrency that started as a joke, now soaring in value. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers around the globe. On today's show, the breakaway football brush off. We've got the latest as opposition to the European Super League builds, as I mentioned, plus a U.S. earnings breakdown, a big day of market moving profit news ahead and a global travel breakthrough. Greece hoping to lure back summer travelers with an embrace of vaccine passports. We'll speak to the Greek Minister of Tourism who believes Greece... Is the word. Yes, I couldn't help myself. The world on Wall Street, meanwhile, is consolidation with U.S. stocks set to retreat further from record highs. Despite further signs of economic recovery from earnings season, United Airlines posting a fifth quarterly loss. Yes, but it says it's now cash flow positive and hopes to see a return to profitability later this year. That message Ties in with some upbeat UK news as well. The unemployment rate falling below 5%, the first quarterly decrease since late, late 2019. The retailer Primark seeing a record week for sales as shops reopened too after a three-month lockdown. But it's not all good news. Nervousness over rising COVID caseloads that could force governments to reimpose emergency measures saw Japanese stocks tumbling Some 2%. So lots going on today. Let's get to the drivers. China's President Xi laying out his vision for global coexistence amid rising tensions with the United States. Xi says China will not seek hegemony no matter how powerful it becomes and warned other countries not to try to boss others. Will Ripley joins me now. Will, great to have you with us. The quote for me, I think from this was big countries should behave in a manner befitting their status with a greater sense of responsibility. I'm sure some nations and critics are going to look at this and say, "Uh what about your own record on Hong Kong? What about your own record on human rights? Time to look in the mirror." Will, what else was said here and what do we think?
1: What was so striking to me, Julia, was how similar this speech was to the speech that President Xi gave uh, in January at Davos. And in fact, this event that he was speaking at has been called China's version of the World Economic Forum. So from the imagery to the messaging, it's very much similar to what he was saying ahead of President Biden's first days in office. But now that we are several months in the conflict between the U.S. and China really is growing here. And this is on the heels of some really great economic news for China to have first quarter economic growth at a record 18.3%. Their economy is rebounding after COVID-19, but the relationship with the U.S. remains on life support. And President Xi's major foil right now is this heightened cooperation between the United States and its traditional allies in standing up to China. So you had Those targeted sanctions as a result of the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, that was the United States, the EU, the UK, uh, Canada, all coming together, not only with a coordinated statement, but also with sanctions towards China. That is very troubling for President Xi because, as he was saying in his speech Uh, Today, Just like he said back in Davos, it's all about equality, mutual respect and trust. He thinks that nations should be allowed to do as they please. And he does not like the idea, Julia, of one or a few nations, as he put it, banding together and trying to impose their rules on another. So China doesn't want to be criticized over human rights or the suppression of the democracy movement here in Hong Kong or accusations of, um, you know, genocide, trying to erase an entire minority culture. They want to forge ahead on their own path and they don't want interference from the West.
0: Yeah, which is perfectly fine. But he's also, as I said, calling for a greater sense of responsibility from nations, too. And I'm not sure you can have it both ways. Well, great to have you with us. Thank you. Will Ripley. All right, let's move on. Football Fury, the backlash against the planned European Super League escalates with the head of Europe's governing body strongly criticising the 12 breakaway teams in an interview with CNN.
2: With this so-called or
3: self-proclaimed Super League, it's all about money. Profits taking money, not sharing with anyone, and they don't know anything about solidarity. They're, They're shameless.
0: Alex Thomas is live in London for us. Alex, great to have you with us. Even the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson weighing in and saying no action is off the table, including legislative action, if necessary, to stop this going ahead. The response has been pretty overwhelmingly negative.
4: Yeah, and neither side really wants this to end up in a court of law. At the moment, it's being tried in the court of public opinion. And it's very much those against a proposed European Super League That are winning it, mainly because we're not hearing from any of the key decision makers who have broken away the so-called dirty dozen to form this Super League, except for Real Madrid president and also president of the proposed Super League, Florentino Perez, who says the main problem is football's losing a young audience. They need to help win them back. Their proposals will help do that and be good for football. Fair to say that is not the opinion of many others. Uh, We heard how angry Alex Seferin, the UEFA president, was in that interview exclusively for CNN late on Monday. He has spoken again at day two of the UEFA Congress and has been more conciliatory, saying to the clubs that are breaking away, it's not too late to change your mind, come back into the fold. But also, crucially, the president of FIFA, the global governing body, we weren't quite sure where they stood actually because Infantino himself is planning a Super League in Africa, which will be a closed shop, no relegation or promotion. And he wants to expand the Club World Cup to include more matches, similar to some of the Super League plans. But he's doing it within the current structures of football. And he said he is definitely against the Super League. Have a listen.
5: If uh, some elect to go their own way, then they must live with the consequences of their choice. They are responsible for their choice. Concretely, this means either you are in or you are out. You cannot be half in or half out.
4: There are conflicting reports, Judy, as to whether some of those proposed Super League clubs are wavering, thinking they've maybe bitten off more than they can chew. Everyone set out their position and now we'll see who blinks first.
0: It was an interesting comment there, though, wasn't it? with regards being in or out, either you're in or you're out. And that's the problem for some of these teams. If it's going to go ahead, you want to be in, you don't want to be out. So there's kind of a game theory issue here for these guys. And the the point that you made as well about the proposed chairman of this European soccer, soccer, um, soccer, Super League, sorry, football, getting excited there, um, Perez, was he was saying that this is about saving football, that, you know, the younger generations are bored. They've got lots of different options in terms of content. They're not watching. Do we buy that theory here Alex because a lot of the criticism has been this is going to ruin some of the smaller teams they're not going to be able to make money they're going to go out of business but he was sort of suggesting this is a way to consolidate viewership for the fans in football
4: yeah I mean it's it's an open secret, isn't it? That uh, you need to try harder to get hold of younger audiences' attention for right. longer periods. Uh, attention spans have been split, there's lots of distractions, but it also has led to growth opportunities. You think of esports, sports think of adrenaline sports, it's easier to get to those niche interests and hobbies that still young people are interested in. They don't all sit in their basements playing computer games all day, despite what you might hear uh, in the media. And it's also true that you could argue that European football rights, particularly for key Champions League games, are still undervalued. There may be more money to get from them. I think what everyone else is arguing is though that for the gains you get, what you would lose in terms of how much it would shatter the finances of governing bodies in Europe and domestic leagues, that's too much of a loss to, to let these 12 and maybe 15, 20 clubs break away and do their own thing.
0: Yeah, you've got to work on a, a way to redistribute the spoils of this if you're going to do it at all. Alex Thomas, thank you so much for that. Right. The world is headed for a surge in carbon dioxide emissions thanks to a coal driven economic recovery and a dire warning for the planet. The International Energy Agency says a boom in the use of coal in Asia, particularly China, is outweighing the growth in renewable energy sources. John Defterius joins me now. John, just give us the details on this, because we've been through a year where we've seen the benefits of well, the relative benefits of lockdown in that the planet recovered quite dramatically. And now we're saying, On the recovery, we're going to do more damage than we were doing before. Yeah,
2: and you can blame coal for it, uh, Julia. Mm. I tell you, a decade ago, if you'd seen this recovery in energy demand, you'd be cheering because it means that you're seeing uh, the globe healing economically. But in 2021 and the race to 2050 uh, for the Paris Climate Agreement and this race that we're in that we're losing against global warming, uh, you have to be alarmed. And yet this rests with the two major emerging markets, uh, China and India representing about two and a half billion people around the world. Uh, China represents half of the global demand growth in coal uh, right now in 2021 and alarmingly often overlooked, by the way, is that it exports coal technology, particularly to Africa. So that game has to stop. I went into India to the heart of coal country uh, two years ago for the Global Energy Challenge, and 45% of their energy demand is met by coal. They have supplies for 100 years, Julia. It's cheap, and they can't afford to get out of it. So we saw uh, Antonio Gutierrez, the uh, UN Secretary General, recently say we have to get the world out of coal by 2030. It's not realistic and if you want this to happen it almost has to be like a Marshall Plan for the emerging markets that cannot afford to make the transition and it's interesting about India they're investing in renewables fantastic growth but demand is rising and they're meeting it by the cheapest ways possible it's not even clean coal technology though and that's the the biggest worry we have today Julia.
0: And obviously the relative level of oil prices also matters for the energy mix here as well. And we're, what, a year to the date since we saw prices collapse, in fact, go negative in terms of oil being delivered, um, JD. What impact did that have on the the industry itself, even for just a brief period? Because obviously we've recovered subsequently, but we've now got third waves in Europe, we've got India. You just mentioned them struggling with COVID as well. So where are we in terms of recovery and investment?
2: Well, there's two different, yeah, there's two different approaches, Julia, so I'm glad you brought it up. OPEC plus, you had to cut, uh, right, better than 20 countries, and they're still cutting. So it was nearly 10% of supplies, and they're adding 2 million barrels between May and July, but they said they'll come back into the market and cut back if they need to. If the U.S. shale producers, the word is consolidate or go bust, and we saw bankruptcy still rising in the first quarter of this year, Uh, because of the uncertainty of demand. So let's look at that flash crash. One year ago, as you suggested, we went negative for 24 hours for uh, WTI. And that was a wake-up call, if you will, to Saudi Arabia and Russia to end the price war that they had over how much they cut because of COVID-19. They woke up out of it and uh, decided to cut nearly 10 million barrels a day, the 10% that I was uh, talking about. And, and the other challenge that we have now is with, you know, if you look at the demand and the challenges for the European Union because of the third wave and in India, you can't be too confident. We have see demand rising by 5 million barrels a day. I don't think that's in the bank for the second half of the year if this continues, Julia. Hmm.
0: John Deftarius, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Jurors have just resumed deliberating in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin, who is white, pleads not guilty to killing George Floyd, a black man with excessive and unreasonable force, by kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes. Thousands of National Guard troops have been deployed in Minneapolis ahead of the verdict. The EU is warning Moscow it will hold Russia accountable for the health of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Supporters say Navalny's health is failing and he could be near death. He went on hunger strike three weeks ago demanding proper medical care for back pain and numbness in his arms and legs. An army spokesman says Chad's longtime president has died from injuries suffered on the front line. Idris Dibi was reportedly visiting troops fighting rebels in the north of the country. It comes just hours after he was declared winner of another presidential election. David McKenzie is covering this for us. He's live in Johannesburg. David, what more do we know?
6: Well, it's an extraordinary story, and it will send shockwaves through the Sahel region, Paris, and Washington for sure. Edris Deby was an extremely important figure in West African Sahelian politics. He's been ruling that country for at least three decades, had just been announced the winner of a disputed election, and then according to the army spokesman on state TV, he went to the front line to either visit with his troops or uh, potentially uh, command his troops. He is, of course, a former general and tactician. And then uh, th- there was an incident at that point, and he subsequently died from his injuries, murky circumstances. And in a way, uh, Debbie died the way he lived. He came into power uh, through force, and he left power on uh, the front lines. Now, a transitional m- uh, military council has been set, set up, according to to those uh, 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 military spokesmen. Let's take a listen to their announcement.
7: The Transitional Military Council assured the Chadian people that all provisions have been taken to assure the peace, the security of the Republican order. Long live the Republic, long live Chad. The president of the Transitional Military Council general will be Mohammed Idris Debi.
6: Now, that's the son of uh, the former president, Debbie. This is a very volatile situation. A journalist we spoke to on the ground in the capital, Jemena, says it is relatively calm. As I mentioned, this will be closely watched by Paris and Washington. There's a large contingent on French troops, more than uh, three, four thousand of them in Jemena. Uh, and Debbie has been a critical, though highly criticized uh, ally in the fight against Islamic tra- terror in the Sahel and Lake Chad basin.
0: David, thank you for joining us. David McKenzie, live from Johannesburg there. OK, so to come here on First Move, sun, sea and social distancing. Greece welcomes back tourists, but only those from the right places and with the right paperwork. The country's tourism minister joins us to explain. And could CureVac be the cure-all for Europe's vaccine woes? We speak to the company's CEO to discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. No turnaround Tuesday for U.S. stocks. Red arrows across the board pre-market as you can see as we pause around record levels. Tobacco stocks like British American Tobacco and Imperial are getting well smoked today. Reports say the U.S. might force cigarette giants to lower nicotine levels. Philip Morris set to fall in U.S. trading today too. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson boosting its full-year guidance and upping its dividend after strong Q1 results. But shares remain under pressure as the U.S. continues its health review of the J&J COVID vaccine, of course. Now blue skies and blue seas await Greece, slowly welcoming back international visitors in time for the European summer. Tourism makes up more than 20% of Greece's GDP and around a quarter of its workforce in the first phase. International direct flights are being allowed on the mainland and these popular islands, including Crete, Corfu and Mykonos. There's no need for quarantine if you're coming from the EU, Britain, the United States, Israel, Serbia or the UAE and you're vaccinated if you're vaccinated or have a negative PCR test. There will still be targeted rapid checks at entry points with quarantine hotels for those who test positive. And just like the locals, you'll find bars and restaurants remain off-limits, except for takeaways. Harry Harris is Minister of Tourism for Greece, and he joins us now. Minister Hithia Harris, great to have you on the show. A lot of countries grappling with how to handle tourism. Greece being bold about this, I think, and the message seems to be, If you're vaccinated in particular, then you're not a risk to others. Is that
7: correct? Well, yes, uh, up to a point. But it's also a complete system that has five levels of uh, protection for everyone. Both our citizens, of course, but also uh, anyone uh, coming to Greece. So this is not just about the vaccination. It's about testing before you um, uh, leave. Uh, in case you're not vaccinated. It's about uh, targeted testing when you arrive, and of course isolation if you or your family, um, if you're positive. Um, it's protocols, masks, the other things that we were used to by now, and um, we have to keep keep social distancing, etc. And of course it's priority vaccination for people serving in the tourism industry. So it's a complete system that wants to keep uh, a balance between international travel and safety.
0: Let's break down those individual pieces of this plan and I'll start with just vaccinations. If you've been vaccinated with uh, the Chinese vaccine, if you've been vaccinated with the Russian vaccine, does that still qualify for entry?
7: Yes, it does qualify for entry. It, it effectively means that you, you can skip the pre-departure uh, test that you have to uh, perform otherwise. So, uh, so that's effectively the only difference between vaccinated and non-vaccinated people.
0: So even though those vaccines aren't approved or authorised in Europe, Greece is saying, look, it's good enough for us.
7: It's good enough for the risk-based approach that we're taking in terms of uh, travelling. The the risk-based approach, it's it's, uh, on an individual basis and not on a regional basis or a country basis. So um, we've uh, waited with our doctors, this is based on our health experts' advice, um, that for the risk is minimal um, as far as international travel is concerned That we don't need to impose both a PCR test and a vaccination certificate in those cases, yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, Greece is trailblazing here. A lot of nations, as I mentioned at the beginning, are struggling to decide how to operate. But at some point, we have to try to get back to some form of normality once more and more people get vaccinated. So you are you are trailblazing on this, which I think is very important. Just help us understand as well the rules that will apply to tourists. Will they be similar to what Greek citizens are currently facing in terms of restrictions traveling to different regions? I, I mentioned that some of the bars and restaurants will be closed as well is there any difference between being a greek citizen in the summer and being a tourist
7: none whatsoever i mean i right. want to be clear about this uh, we are um, applying the same health and safety uh, a tourist's life is as important to us as our citizens life so the same rules that are imposed for high um, you know hygienic reasons for the epidemiological reasons will apply to everyone we do not discriminate in any um, way whatsoever so it's important that people understand this. Uh, we're hoping that things will actually be more and more liberalised as the vaccination programmes uh, throughout the world uh, progress. Uh, but even if we have uh, uh, changes in the other direction, uh, those changes will apply to everyone.
0: What's it going to be like? For those that are watching here and thinking, I'd love to go to Greece, I've been to Greece before, it's a a beautiful country, I'm biased, I love the Greek islands, but if things are shut, if the country is still challenged, what's it going to be like as a tourist?
7: Well, um, uh, let me say... um, uh, by the 14th of may where we um we're gonna have the formal opening of our tourism season um restaurants will be open especially outdoor uh, parts of the restaurants um we we already have the archaeological sites open people have to wear masks so so this is not a a, a normal summer i mean uh, those restrictions still apply um so uh, you can still enjoy the outside, you can you could do hiking, you can enjoy the beach where you don't need to wear a mask. You can enjoy those things, uh, but you still need to keep your distance. You still need to be, um, you know, uh, uh, cautious about uh, how we move, move about.
0: Yes, sun, sea and social distancing, uh, that really is the message. Yes. Uh, you mentioned as well, yeah. a top priority is getting people that work in the tourism sector, vaccinated. Can you give us a sense of your timing on this? Clearly, it depends on supplies. But when people go there, will they know that generally they're being helped, provided services by people that are vaccinated too?
7: Yes, of course. Um, uh, We will for certainly guarantee that they're either very, very um, tested often or they're vaccinated. Uh, We're hoping actually that the vaccination programme will actually accelerate And we will not need to to vaccinate as a priority. We will open those ages, if you like, and people working in the tourism industry uh, will have the ability to get vaccinated as a matter of fact, like the rest of the population. But if there is still um, supply uh, sort of restrictions, uh, then uh, we will uh, prioritize our people in in the industry to to vaccinate them uh, uh, as a priority.
0: Minister Thea Harris, we spoke to um, Prime Minister Mitsotakis a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, I'll be clear, and we were talking about the challenges of handling the third wave and how your intensive care units are doing and your healthcare workers. Can you just give us the latest on how you're managing the current outbreak?
7: Yes, of course, we're uh, trying to manage the, the best possible way. We see already the dent in the number of cases uh, because of the, um, the vaccination uh, progress. Uh, every day we vaccinate enough people to lower the transmissibility by 0.5%. So that's that's an important factor that uh, as the days progress uh, bites in, into the, the disease. But the situation in the hospitals is still tense. Uh, I don't want to deny that. We're still managing in in, in sort of uh, with a health system which is very, very much stressed, but a health system that's coping at the same time. So, so we haven't seen the overwhelming of the health system like we have seen in other places, but it's still a very stressful period for all our health personnel.
0: Yes, and we wish you all well, sir. And uh, fingers crossed for a good and safe summer. Harry Theore-Harris the Minister of Tourism for Greece. Great to have you on the show. All right, up next, Curevac's potentially game-changing vaccine now under review in Switzerland and Europe. We've got the CEO next. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Fresh weakness, though, for Wall Street after yesterday's pullback. Benchmark 10-year bond yields in the United States firming up a bit, too, after their recent pullback. So that's probably not helping sentiment either. European bond yields have seen noticeable moves higher as well amid increased inflation and economic expectations. The German 10-year yield at their least negative levels In over a year. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I am at their least negative levels in over a year. In the meantime, IBM bucking today's negative tech trend, posting its first quarter of revenue growth in over a year, boosted by demand for the company's cloud computing services. Netflix, meanwhile, set to report results after the closing bell today. Its shares are up just 2% year-to-date amid increased competition in the streaming space. And a great year last year, of course. Fears of weaker subscription growth as lockdowns ease also adding to the mix here too. A Bridgerton too far for some investors, perhaps. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Twice. All right, let's move on. German biotech company CureVac has been working with mRNA technology for over 20 years. Now its COVID-19 vaccine candidate is raising hopes the vaccine is under review in Europe and in the last 24 hours in Switzerland, too. The two-dose vaccine uses the same mRNA, the messenger RNA platform, as Pfizer and Moderna's version, but does not require the same extreme cold storage. Joining us now is Franz Werner Haas. He's the CEO of CureVac. Franz, fantastic to have you on the show. I know you guys, you and the team have been incredibly busy. Just give us a status check and your sense of timing if all things go well with the trials.
5: Thank you, Julia. Um, Yeah, we are more or less close to the finish line. We have uh, more or less uh, completed recruitment uh, with uh, around about 40,000 subjects recruited in our phase three and uh, while well, we are expecting the cases to come in, uh, these are the subjects which have been vaccinated in our trial, uh, and then to see whether people who have been catching after second vaccination uh, COVID, uh, whether they are in the placebo group or in the vaccine group. And uh, we are expecting these data to come in May. So, and uh, then we will know more. And certainly, the expectation is quite high. And then, uh, after cleaning of the data, we hope and depending on the data, certainly expecting uh, approval in June.
0: I believe you're doing rolling reviews of the data. Does that mean you can give us any sense of just how well things are going, even if you can't give us specific data? Because when I I mentioned in the introduction that it's the same platform as Pfizer and Moderna, the obvious question is, is there any reason to think the performance of this vaccine will be materially different from theirs?
5: Well, to start with the latter one, uh, yes, it is mRNA, and uh, CureVac has started from the immunocytes of things uh, and not on the molecular therapeutic field, so there Mm -hmm. on a scientific part, uh, there are differences because there is a chemical modification introduced within uh, Modernis and BioNTech's uh, mRNA, but in principle, it works exactly the same. The difference is, and most probably due to this difference I wasn't uh, uh, talking about before, is that uh, we are, uh, our dose is 12 microgram, uh, with uh, BioNTech-Pfizer, it's uh, 30 microgram per dose and uh, Moderna is 100 uh, microgram So you see here a difference in the dosages. Um, and uh, then certainly we are uh, shooting for a cold chain in fridge temperature, at least for a few months, uh, which for the pandemic certainly also makes a difference.
0: I mean, this is of huge importance if we see success with your vaccine and and fingers crossed we do, because obviously one of the challenges of getting the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines to developing nations is the requirement for that deep cold chain storage. And what you're saying is actually because of a difference in the science, despite being the same platform, yours can be kept at far higher temperatures than theirs.
5: Uh, Yes, that's true. But uh, you see, everyone is working exactly on the stability because it is uh, uh, certainly an obstacle if you if you go for broad logistics, Uh, but with like all the innovations, you start somewhere and lucky us all. And certainly we are expecting also great data to come to be proven, even though we have got the rolling submission, so we are giving certain data sets to the regulatory authority, that they do not have to cope with uh, on the very x day when the data are there to, to read through all of this, so partially you can give in. The most essential, certainly the efficacy data, we don't know about because it's a double-blinded study. And uh, certainly everyone is working then on the cold chain. So it is good that the first vaccines are out there, even though the logistics are not all settled. But everyone is working on this, uh, as are we.
0: Assuming you get approval in the EU, how soon could you start delivering vaccines? Because I know you're manufacturing them already in anticipation of of good results.
5: Yes, all what we have pre-produced, so uh, at risk, which means uh, that in the hope that our data will be good enough that we will have uh, approval that immediately we will release the dosages produced so far. And we are not only producing by ourselves, but we have got a pan-European network of different kind of partners who are producing for us. So our Tübingen-based manufacturing unit we have uh, duplicated quite some, uh, several times uh, all over Europe in order to have this mass produced. And, and these facilities needs to be scaled up and I can tell you that the manufacturing to get the equipment, but also the supply to produce the mRNA is really a hassle, because it's a shortage all over, and in uh, some some of the materials even blocked by by legislation not to go to get out to certain countries. So, um, uh, which is really a struggle. Not just have the facilities and the equipment. If you get the equipment, but also the material to produce. So it's very hard.
0: You're talking about the U.S. Defense Production Act. It's tough to get supplies when certain aspects of the supply chain are restricted through nations saying we need to prioritize our own country.
5: That's absolutely correct, uh, which counts on both sides. The uh, equipment, certainly to to build your facility and the machines to run it. And then certainly the supply as well. And if you have got components, let's say 90 components, if you're missing just one, you, you don't have a vaccine to produce.
0: Give us the best case scenario. How many and when? do you think Europe will receive your vaccines, assuming everything goes well with the trials? Best case scenario...
5: And best case scenario, we are scaling up this manufacturing uh, um, uh, network, and uh, there, there will be, at the end of the year, uh, all of this will be established 100%, and we are, we are shooting to have uh, 300 million dosages produced towards the end of the year, which does not mean that all of these dosages are released, because you have to follow up, certainly with a GMP, which is a good manufacturing process to, to release uh, those doses. But this would be really that we are getting through with everything and get all the material.
0: And um, very quickly in in 2022, how many do you think you can produce?
5: Yeah, also then uh, the entire network will uh, if we get all the equipment it will be established and also our manufacturing unit here in tubing industrial scale facility will be up and running starting from the mid of the year, so it's uh, somewhere between uh, 800 and a billion dosages to be produced and then again the release times come on top.
0: Fantastic. We will keep our fingers crossed. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for your whole team as well. Franz werner Hassler, the CEO of CureVac. Great to chat to you. All right, coming up on the show, a deepening COVID crisis in Brazil. Why it's called a humanitarian catastrophe by Doctors Without Borders. Next. Welcome back to First Move. The global death toll from COVID-19 topped a staggering 3 million lives over the weekend. With a deepening crisis in countries like Brazil, nearly 375,000 people in Brazil have now lost their lives. Some public health experts are warning that the country may deteriorate further due to political chaos and inaction. Joining us now, the international president of Doctors Without Borders, Christos Christou. Christos, great to have you with us. You've called this a human catastrophe. Just explain what your colleagues are seeing in Brazil at this moment.
3: What we see in Brazil this moment is uh, preventable deaths and unnecessary suffering. Each week, as you mentioned, there is a new record of deaths and infections The hospitals are overflowing and there is still no coordinated, centralized response. The workers, the health workers are physically, mentally and emotionally exhausted.
0: Christos, the truth here is frightening, but I think people need to hear it. There are reports of drug shortages. And that the healthcare workers are having to intubate patients in order to give them oxygen and they're having to do it without the appropriate sedation. I can't even imagine what it's like for the patient, but also for the healthcare workers to have to do this. Is this is this what happening? Is this what's happening right now?
3: This is exactly what is happening. This is what I keep uh, listening from my people uh, and, and uh, to everyone that I speak to these days shortages of oxygen, uh, medical devices and medications used to intubate critically ill patients and uh, personal protective uh, equipment. Sometimes they have uh, even to improvise. And uh, within a night, we see uh, units that they were never purposed for se- uh, such a reason, to be repurposed in order to accommodate very critically ill uh, patients.
0: Have they got adequate PPE, the, the health care workers, have any of them, many of them been vaccinated? Because that's another challenge for Brazil too.
3: Indeed, Brazil has the capacity to uh, roll out massive vaccination campaigns, but at uh, this right moment they don't have uh, the, uh, the doses needed. This is one thing. Uh, in regards to uh, shortages of drugs, medication, and of course the PPEs, uh, the problem is also because there is no uh, coordinated response. There's not centralized response that can allocate based on the needs for each unit. And uh, that is what is uh, very much worrying. On top of this, of course, I think uh, there's also another very important thing here. Uh, It seems that uh, the federal uh, government, uh, the central system, does not listen to the science. We have so many uh, uh, things that we have learned the last year about uh, measures that can uh, be applied and uh, can be very much effective, Uh, public health measures, and unfortunately, we don't see them uh, in Brazil being applied uh, in a, in an horizontal scale.
0: You make such an important point. We are one year into this crisis. We we know how to handle it as best we can, what's involved, what to do when ICUs become completely overwhelmed. Christos, what are we looking at here? Are we just looking at complete and utter government failure?
3: Yes, exactly. I think that... Um, Even the severity of the crisis is not acknowledged by the Brazilian government at this moment and uh, what I keep hearing from my people and to whomever I speak to is that the disease needs to be taken seriously by the authorities. Uh, People are desperate, they are mourning and they need uh, this kind of help. Unfortunately, what we see is uh, public health messages have become associated with political messages. And as a doctor, I cannot accept that. Uh, Wearing a mask, for instance, is not and should not be a political stance. It is, in part, what is needed to slow down
7: the spread of the virus.
0: Your workers are heroes and they must be quite frightened. Are any of them saying to you, look at... I want to come home. I I want to leave. I'm afraid of what I'm seeing and what I'm having to deal with.
3: No matter how difficult it is to be uh, uh, working uh, and uh, today in several places like Brazil, uh, I think uh, all my colleagues and uh, all uh, the medical and healthcare workers also, that they are in the forefront and uh, they work uh, not with MSF but with the states, with the municipalities they would never abandon their uh, patients and they are sitting there next to them trying even to stand uh, by them without sometimes having to offer a lot but uh, this is something that I would never hear from anyone however how much desperate they can be. That's why it is important this right moment to uh, assist them to provide this necessary support that they are missing to coordinate a little bit more uh, the uh, activities that we have.
0: Your team and all the healthcare workers around the world are absolute heroes and I can only thank them for the work that they continue to do. You've said the nation desperately needs a science-based rethink, which I think for people watching and understanding, they would agree with you completely. What happens if we don't see that in Brazil? Where is this headed, Christos?
3: I'm afraid that uh, this trend uh, will continue and will cost uh, more and hundreds of thousands of more lives uh, as well as further health uh, uh, collapse uh, uh, Collapse of the health system. Uh, This uh, happens when uh, we don't uh, apply things that we know that they work, this happens when we don't have uh, one uh, consistency in uh, the messages, this happens when we do not let the science uh, guide us and lead us on uh, how to better respond, and uh, unfortunately, this is what is happening today in Brazil.
0: Christos, what's your message to President Bolsonaro?
3: Take it seriously. It is a very serious disease. Uh, Listen to the people that they are there. I have met brilliant colleagues from all different institutions, medical health uh, uh, facilities, that that they know their job well. They know what we have to do. And uh, please uh, coordinate in a federal level, uh, coordinate all these different levels and provide them the support that they uh, they need. Brazil has the capacity. Brazil has the resources and the people to do that. It's just uh, uh, the lack of the political will.
0: I know, and our hearts are with them, everyone who's suffering and involved, and to your team, thank you for the work that you're doing. Christos Christi the International President of Doctors Without Borders, our heroes. Thank you. You're watching First Move, more to come. back to the show. Call it the artful dodger of the crypto world, Dogecoin. I once laughed at cryptocurrency as having its day in the sun, its value soaring as much as 20% on what its fans are calling Doge Day. But prices are in reverse right now, down nearly 5%. Claire Sebastian is here to explain rather you than me. I think the first thing we need to clear up is what is it actually called? Is it Dogecoin or is it doggy coin? Because there is a picture of a dog on the front of it. It's like calling a target. Pajé, I
8: believe. Yes, Claire, it, lends, lends the, <laughs> it lends the sophisticated edge, the, the, the pronunciation doge Going, That is the most common one I've heard, but I know there is some debate out there about how exactly to pronounce it. But but look, I think that's part of the, the appeal here. This is sort of the underdog, if you'll allow me uh, oh! a little... On there, uh, of the crypto world and it has really become sort of much more mainstream due to the huge rise in its value this year. Extraordinary numbers, Julia. The value was up about 8000% so far in 2021, about 400% in the past week alone, which is the kind of rally that you just don't really see except in these sort of meme type investments, including stocks like GameStop uh, that we've seen in the past. But this is a cryptocurrency that was started by two software engineers as a joke in 2013. It's different from Bitcoin in that it doesn't have the sort of built in scarcity. There's not a limited supply. They're going to release more blocks, as, it called, as it's so-called every so often, and people can can mine it just like they do Bitcoin. But, you know, really extraordinary chain of events over the past uh, week. It at one point crashed Robinhood's crypto system because uh, demand was so high. Elon Musk has been tweeting about it. Uh, so, you know, I think Look at it today. It's down a little bit. Doge day doesn't seem to be going quite so well. So I think as it as it as it is with all of these sort of meme investments, you know, buyer beware.
0: Yeah, I might have known that. Um Elon Musk will be involved, particularly Apt, talking about this on uh, April 20th. You mentioned the two originators of this. Mr. Marcus, one of them, said he made just enough from selling it. He sold out in 2015, I believe, to buy a Honda Civic. And when he was asked what he thinks of it, he says it doesn't make sense. It's super absurd. The coin design was absurd. Are we looking at the crypto equivalent of GameStop, Claire? What do you make of it?
8: I think yes uh, to some extent certainly when we see a lot of the same sort of tropes around it there's a there's a reddit group called Satoshi Street bets that's trying to pump up the value on this so-called doge day you remember Wall Street bets was was responsible for some of the uh, the rally around uh, around gamestop I think you know interestingly if you look at this the, the rally around gamestop didn't really change gamestop I think what we're seeing here with the rally around dogecoin is it is st- to to a certain extent, to a limited extent, leading to more mainstream uh, adoption. We see the likes of of Mark Cuban also tweeting about it, the Dallas Mavericks, uh, which he owns now, accept Dogecoin uh, for sales of tickets and merchandise. There's other sort of smaller companies, Air Baltic, a Latvian airline is starting to accept Dogecoin. So I think the difference here is that as, as Dogecoin increases in value, admittedly it's only worth about 38 cents uh, right now, but as, as it sort of increases in value, that pumps up the publicity around it uh, and that is leading to slightly more mainstream adoption. But in terms of the GameStop comparison, very little intrinsic value apart from the, the demand for it right now. Very limited use cases. Buyer beware. I mean, for non-crypto savvy people, I think their heads just exploded.
0: The end. Hello, Sebastian. Thank you so much for that. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my social media at Jay CNN, of course, and we will see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Have a great rest of the day and connect the world with Becky Anderson. Is next.
2: Now, streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.